0: May the words of my mouth and meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. In the year 1854, there was a man called Roger who was an heir of a huge family fortune. And he was uh, living in, um, in South America, even though his family has lived in England. And he set sail from South America to head home to London to be with his mother and as he was on the ship, uh, there was a great storm. The ship uh, was caught in the midst of the storm, and it sank. And it was presumed that Roger, like every other member of the, that uh, ship, had perished in, in the sinking of that vessel. Everyone presumed that is, except for Henriette Tickborn, who was Roger's mother. She was sure that he had survived the storm, and that somehow had been rescued, and for some reason she believed him to be living in Australia. Interesting, um, I don't know about Lady Tickborn and her sense of geography, but anyway, here's what it was. That she believed that he was in Australia. So she did what any mother would do. She placed ads in newspapers all over the world, particularly in most of the major metropolitan areas in, in Australia. She was sure that Roger had somehow survived and was living there and just needed to be found. One day in London, a man came calling to Lady Tickborne's home, and he announced that it was indeed that he was her son, Roger. It had been years since she had seen him, and so at first she was a bit skeptical, but then she began to look closely and thought she saw what was a family resemblance, and she welcomed him into her home. And um, it seemed like everything was just going to be peaches and cream for some time, until Roger began to make a claim on the inheritance, and that's when family members also began to push back. There's something wrong with this guy. We don't think that he is who he purports to be. And so there was a trial. A trial in which um, Roger Tickborn was placed on on trial to, to um uh you know make his identity certain. But there were some problems. And the particularly thorny issue was that Roger Tickborn had been raised his first, I don't know, ten or fifteen years in France, in Paris. And so his first language was French. And he couldn't speak a word of it or understand a word of it under uh, cross-examination in the trial. He apparently knew no French. And so they're thinking there's no way that this pr- could possibly be the right person. He uh, was found to be unable to establish his identity and, in fact, was put on trial for perjury after that. He was found guilty of perjury and he spent ten years in prison. When he was released from prison... One of the Tickborn family members offered him a handsome sum, sum of money to say that he had, in fact, been lying. He gladly accepted the money and recanted his uh, position as being a member of the Tickborn family, then spent all his money and recanted his recantation, um, only to go back on it. It was never really decided for sure, was Roger Tickborn this um, this uh personal in trial the greatest trial of victorian england was he who he said he was or was he a fraud and i thought about how the world has always been filled with you know frauds you know cheats charlatans people who who say one thing and are another and you can read about it and virtually you know Any day on the Internet, a newspaper, on television about people who are con men and women, you know, the the cheats, the scalawags, you know, the charlatans, they're out there every day. Some of them are so accomplished that they almost are admirable right up to the point where you remember that they're stealing people's money and property. And that's when you, oh, yeah, not so – we make movies about them. You know, they're the whole, uh, you know, oceans movies, you know, where you have these big con games that are going on. Most of the time when we find these people, though, we're just sort of disgusted by them and, and celebrate their capture and imprisonment. And if you look through the annals of history, virtually every profession has its, its con men, its scalawags, its charlatans, its fakes. Um, people who pretended to be doctors. This is where the term quack came from, right? People who pretended to be lawyers. Um, some auto mechanics and school teachers. Uh, engineers. And I know, perish the thought, even clergymen. Have been, you know, people who have been frauds and charlatans. The business of peddling religion, um, for a prophet is not without its marks on society and in history. In the New Testament letter, in the epistle letter, is St. Paul, um, this, this passage from, uh, 1 Thessalonians, first uh, 1, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, as I've told you, is, is a part of a personal letter. I mean, it's, it's male. It's an ancient version of email. You know, this is somebody had sent a personal correspondence. This is Paul. He's a a missionary and a preacher. The very first person ever to go into Europe preaching the gospel. And if you kind of remember, he goes into the northern part of, of Greece, what we would call Macedonia. And he goes to these little cities up there along the way, Philippi, and then later later Thessalonica, which uh, today is called Thessaloniki, but the same city. Um, And then he worked his way down south from there down to Athens and Corinth and down into the main part of of, um, Greece. Well, his practice, Paul's was, was to go into a city, he'd preach, he would um, find converts, people would come to believe, he would establish a church, they would make friends, teach him how to make potato salad, whatever it was he did, and uh, and they became really good friends and, and lived in a community together and worshipped and did the sort of things that we do. And then Paul would move on. He would put somebody in charge, here you're in charge, and then he would go on to another one, and he would write back as he heard news from these churches. One of the real frustrations Paul has, and you find this in his letters, is that there are people who follow him. There are certain men who are following him. And these men, in every place that Paul goes, they wait for him to leave. They come in behind and they say one of two things. One is, Paul didn't tell you the full story. He sort of left some things out. Let us fill in the gaps. Or they would say, Paul's a fake. He's a charlatan. He's a fraud. And it seems to be the case that after Paul left Thessalonica... That their people came in behind him and began to make this claim. Paul's a fake. He and his friends Silas and Timothy, these guys who came here, they're not to be trusted. They're frauds, they're charlatans, whatever. They were selling you the gospel for money. And Paul writes back and makes a defense for himself. And what we have in this little passage that was read just a moment ago, if you open up your bulletin, will you look at it with me, for this passage in one Thessalonians chapter two, where Paul makes his defense. Listen, I want to show you, I am not a fake, I am not a fraud, and as he does it, he sort of gives us something of the criterion for what uh, a trustworthy missioner looks like. What does somebody who's a trustworthy, authentic um, Christian missioner look like? And the first one I see is that he says that he is personally invested. The very first verse, look at this. For you remember, brothers, brothers and sisters, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. The knock against Paul. He's in it for the money. And he's like, what do you mean we're in it for the money? You remember. You remember Thessalonian Christians. What happened when we were here? What do you remember? You remember that we worked and toiled, um, that we labored and toiled. There's two words here, right? That we, we did physical work while we were among you. Night and day, we were constantly working. If we weren't working preaching, we were working, working. We were busy making a living so that we didn't become a burden to any of you. Paul says, Timothy and Silas, we didn't expect you to provide for anything for us. Why? Because Paul is a missionary. And the the, the subjects, the the people who are the mission field, have no responsibility to provide for the missioner's needs. Now in a church, it is right for a church to provide for clergy, but this is among believers, not among the mission field. And Paul is saying, I was personally invested in this. I was personally invested so that you, we weren't a burden to any of you. Um, someone told me uh, one time, and I think this is right, that people will never care how much you know until they know how much you care. That is absolutely true. People will never care how much you know until they know how much you care. Once somebody believes that you're invested in them, that you care about them, suddenly there is an interest. Okay, I want to hear what you have to say. I want to, to understand this. Paul is saying, we came here because of you. We came here and invested in you. We didn't come here for anything of ourselves. And I think that's true for us, for the church today, that we should never have a concern in people as a means of advancing our budgets or filling pews or making our mark in the world. That is no reason to be interested in the lives of people. We should do good to do good. We should be invested in people for the betterment of humanity and that alone. That should be our main and our primary motivating force. It is the betterment of human beings. You know, the gospel of Christ changes people. It makes a a qualitative difference in the way they live. Uh, They used to have this um, thing that they would say in in Victorian England about the Methodists. The Methodists um, were uh, were really kind of very strict about, they were Anglicans, that's who they were. They were Anglicans who took very seriously their piety. And... um, and they helped to change people's lives because there was a big, um, there was a big addiction to gin in uh, the 19th century, 18th century, 19th century in England. And, um, and what the Methodists would help people do is to, to, to get free of alcoholism. And they would say, you know, don't be amazed that, that Jesus turned water into wine. The Methodists will show you how to turn gin into furniture. You know, you can, you can have a life where you don't spend all of your wealth and income on, on beverage alcohol, and instead you actually have something to live with. Christianity makes a, a qualitative difference in the lives of people. It helps them get free from, from bondage to drugs and alcohol, from violence and, and, and domestic discord. And brings about happiness and joy. That's why we take the gospel to people, because it improves their lives. Okay, second thing, second sign of, of, of being an authentic uh, missioner here was their own personal religious devotion. The next verse, verse 10. You see where I am? You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you. You remember, the first one. You remember, and now um, you are witnesses. You remember what we did. You remember how we lived. What was our lives like? They were marked by holiness. A better word here, I think, would be piety or devotion. You know that we were devout people. We were devout. We we, we were seriously concerned about righteousness. The second thing he says, this is moral, ethical behavior. We were blameless. There was not, not a single whiff of scandal among us. This is how we lived. It was more than just the appearance of piety. We lived as pious people. We did not try to manipulate or exploit anyone for any reason. And I thought about how our culture really needs to hear this. People are often one way in public and another way in private. And if you have been watching the news at all of late, we see a ton of this. Accusations being made against people who were purported to be magnanimous and genteel and kind. And all of a sudden, what they are doing behind closed doors is assaulting and using power as a way to manipulate people. And it takes a long time before it ever becomes public. There's virtually a new report every day. Paul is saying what you saw of us in public is the same way you saw us in private. There was no disconnect between the way we, li- we uh, lived one way and in, in, in another. It reminded me of another aphorism that I remember. It has to do with integrity. In- integrity is what you are when no one else is watching. Integrity is what you are when no one's watching. When no one can say that this is what integrity is. Paul said, we lived with integrity among you. How do you know if mission work is authentic? Well, the missioners at least ought to have a commitment to Christ. It ought to be part of their their regular life. Third, verse 11. The third one is um, familial affection. uh, That they love people like family. Look at verse 11. You know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God. The accusation, Paul... He's a charlatan, he's a fraud, he's a phony. And he says, wait a minute, you remember, you witnessed. And now, third time, you know. You know what? You know how we treated you like a father treats his children. Not even a great translation here. In Paul's original Greek, he says how a father treats his own children. His own children. There's a sense of love and kindness. You know, Being a parent... Those of you who are parents know this is hard work. Sometimes, um, when I see somebody with little children, like infants, I sort of um, I, I sort of feel a heaviness, like, "Oh no, <laughs> you don't know what the next two decades hold." You know, like, especially when you get into the second decade. You know, that's when you're really like, "Oh my word, you hey, wait, you are you are a champion for about ten years." You know. And then you're not. <laughs> you're, you're not for a while. Um, you could do no wrong for 10 years. And then year 11 or 12, like, you can do no right. Uh, and you know this, So those of you who are parents. You know that a child, every child, is a 20-year a, a commitment off the bat of, of seriously hard work. And then... It's a continual another two decades of work of steering and guiding and direction. Maybe when they hit 40 years old, they'll, they'll sort of like be a ship that's set to sea you know, see, and it's going, things are going pretty well. That's when they come back to you and tell you about everything you did wrong, right? And this is the way it's probably going to work. Um, I tell my mother about my therapy bills. Uh, all her fault. It, being a parent's hard work. And Paul says, you were like children to us. We treated you like a father treats his child, his own. And what does that mean? We exhorted you and encouraged you and charged you. We, we, were, we were firm in our love, not wishy-washy, not uncertain. We gave you serious direction. Why? So that you could walk in a manner worthy of God. And Paul likes this, uh, this metaphor, Walk. Uh, he uses it all the time for how people live, and we use it too. We just don 't even think about it it 's so it 's so uh, pervasive in our language for instance we 'll say something like you can walk you can talk the talk, but can you walk the walk? You know this one right you 've heard this you can say what you want, but let me see it." In your life, my friend used to be in the, uh, a green beret in the army, and he used to say something like, um, "Your actions are speaking so loud, I can't hear a word you're saying." <laughs> There's this this connection between what we say and how we live. Paul is saying we tried very hard to raise you up like a father raises up children, like a mother raises up children, to give you direction, encouragement, and we did this out of the bonds of love. And I think this is the ultimate uh, arbiter of whether or not we're true in the way that we work with, it, with people in the world. Do we love them? Are we, are we loving people like family? Or do we see them as objects? See, Paul was accused of being a fake and a charlatan. And he makes his defense and he says, look, this is the way that we were personally invested. We were sincere in our devotion and we loved you with genuine love. Take that. <laughs> Here's my defense. Now do something with that. You know, this lady Tickborn, she, uh, she was desperate for her son to come home. Her son, Roger, who had been lost at sea. And she was so desperate that she opened herself up to, um, to being cheated. Uh, she opened herself up to, um, to some sort of uh, trickster. Her fortune and everything that she had. And I think people in our world are desperate I think they're desperate for hope. I think many people are desperate for meaning. Um, They're desperate for something that's real to cling on to. And yet they've seen so many fakes and frauds and charlatans. They become cynical about claims, especially even the claims of the gospel. And they want to know, how do I know if it's real? How do I know if what you have to offer is real? And I don't think they'll ever know it's real until they see it in us until they see it in us, to know that we are personally invested in the well-being of other people, until they know that we have a sincere devotion to God that's not a fake one, until we act out of genuine love. You know when people will begin to believe that the gospel is real? When they believe that it is real in us, and not until. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.